0: This week and next in our morning sermon series, we're going to take a little break from our Daniel series uh, to focus in on these uh, big events in Jesus' life. Big events in the Gospels, Palm Sunday and then Easter next Sunday morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 21. We're going to be reading the first 17 verses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus. All four of them record these these key events at the end of Jesus' life on earth, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. We're reading Matthew's account, and that's in Matthew 21. Before we read, we pray. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, Matthew 21, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. As they approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. It's God's word for us this morning. May he... Bless it to us. People of God, when you you open up the Bible and, and start reading somewhere, it's helpful to look for clues. There are clues you can find that will help you read and help you better understand what God's Word is saying in a particular spot. For example, if you read a section of Scripture... And there might actually be one like this, like let's say in First John or somewhere in John, where the word love comes up like 10 times in five verses. That's a clue. That's an obvious clue that any of us can figure out. That's a clue. This text, this passage is about love. It's about either God's love for us or our love to God or our love to others or it's about all those things. But it's definitely about love if you see that word all over the place. We read from verse 1 all the way through 17 because of the clues in the verses. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem, verse 17 at the end, as he left them and went out of the city. That means this is a unit that belongs together. And within that unit, that section of Jesus entering in and then leaving, we find four main scenes, four pictures. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Jesus entering the temple area and driving out those who were buying and selling. Jesus healing the lame and the blind. And then in the last verses, you see the word children a few times. There's this picture and focus on the children who were praising Jesus on that first Palm Sunday. What connects these scenes Well, they answer a question that's right near, not exactly, but right near the middle of our verses. The people asked, who is this entering Jerusalem? And the answer is, it's Jesus. So these four scenes on the first Palm Sunday give us an answer to the question, who is Jesus? jesus arrival on earth at his birth we celebrate that at christmas his arrival is about the inauguration of the kingdom of god his life and ministry that we read all about in the gospels tell us what that kingdom of god is all about now this is a key week in the life of jesus on this earth We read about his triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. Later in the week, for us and for the people here, there would be the Last Supper, the crucifixion, then the resurrection. So you see, this is a very critical time in Jesus' life on this earth. Things are coming together. Things are culminating. And that means that the events that we read about in the Gospels have special significance. We're being given in our text special insight into who Jesus is and what his kingdom and what our kingdom living are all about. We see all of those things in these four scenes. We're going to look at each one, and I want you to have in mind three, three dimensions of the kingdom as we read, okay? Okay. We're going to hit this as we go on, but keep keep this in the back of your mind as we look at these pictures, these scenes. One, who is the king of the kingdom of God? In other words, who is Jesus exactly? These scenes are here to tell us who Jesus is so we can worship him more passionately and adore him better so we can be more amazed at our Savior Jesus. So who is Jesus? So you can worship him better and more. Two, are the kingdom characteristics that we see evident in my life personally? Jesus calls us to enter into the kingdom by believing in him. When we do, we become citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and we give our allegiance to Jesus. If Jesus is your king... You will value the same things that Jesus does in your personal life. So with every scene as we see who Jesus is, ask yourself, is this a characteristic in my life? Ask, where do I need to ask God to make me more like Jesus today and this week? Three, realize that the kingdom of God in this world, is advanced and it grows through God's methods and God's means. There is the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan and darkness, and they have their ways, but so does God. We'll see the ways that God's kingdom grows in your life, in the church, in the world, as we look at these scenes, too. Now the four scenes, what they tell us about Jesus, our own lives, about the kingdom of God. One, we find that the kingdom attitude is humility. The kingdom attitude is humility, okay? At the beginning of our verses, Jesus sent two disciples to get a donkey for Jesus to ride on in the city. Why in the world is he doing this strange thing, sending them to find a donkey and a colt? Matthew tells us it's to fulfill a prophecy from the Old Testament about the Messiah. The Messiah, for the Jews in the Old Testament, was the promised coming king, who Jesus was. So this was a way of Jesus in his final week before his death, this was Jesus announcing who he is, that he is the promised king of the Old Testament, promised for hundreds of years. But he doesn't come in on a king's vehicle. He's not riding a limo like a celebrity would. He's not in a shiny, black, bulletproof car like world leaders today. In those days, a typical king would have ridden on a white horse, like a stallion maybe, or in a chariot. But not Jesus, because Jesus is different, and his ways are different, his kingdom is different. He's saying, I'm not coming with worldly power and might to slay the enemies of Israel like the people were expecting. Because they were under Roman authority at this time. He's not saying he's going to free them by slaying the Romans' oppression. His mission was to save, not to slay. He didn't come to make war with Rome, but he came to make peace with God for men and women and boys and girls like us. So he comes in a humble way with humility. Jesus is the king, the Israelites were expecting, who was promised years earlier, but he doesn't come in a prideful, arrogant, powerful attitude we normally associate with kings. Instead, it's with humility, with gentleness, because he's coming to be a sacrificial servant, as everyone is going to see even more clearly just a few days later as he gives his life on the cross. The second scene is verses 12 and 13 in the temple. Now the temple, we're going to hear more about the temple tonight actually. It was the place of worship for the Israelites. And the point here is that the kingdom embrace is inclusive, inclusivity. How do we see that in this scene? What what does that mean? Here's what's going on the word the temple area is a technical term actually it doesn't sound very technical less it's like the area around the temple but it actually is a technical term and it means the outer court of the temple now the outer court of the temple was called the court of the gentiles gentiles were non-jews so this area was a special area in and around the house of worship of God that was designed for non-Jews. And that was in keeping with the mission of Israel all throughout the Old Testament that they really sadly failed at. That was in keeping with the mission of Israel that God said, I am your God, you are my people, and you are to be a light to the nations. That was a piece of that mission right at the center of the worship, a place for non-Jews to worship. It's to show everyone who God was. That's what they were supposed to do. We've got another Old Testament quote here. When Jews heard Old Testament quotes, they knew the Bible, the scriptures, it was for them the Old Testament, well enough to fill in missing words. So a lot of times, a little phrase would trigger a whole verse. And there's some missing words here. My house will be a house of prayer is what we've got quoted in Matthew. The several other words in the prophecy are for the nations. My house will be a house of prayer for the nations. So this driving out by Jesus, it wasn't just about the fact that they were selling stuff in the church lobby. Sacrificial animals always needed to be sold around the temple because not everyone had a farm especially in the city and were growing or raising their own animals for sacrifices they needed to sell those animals to sacrifices god commanded them so that wasn't the issue the issue was the people were not using the court of the gentiles as god told them to so that it could be a house of prayer for the nations and the issue, especially with the money changers, as we learn from a famous Jewish Christian historian, Adersheim, is that they charged a 25% fee for foreigners who had to exchange their money. So you see, the Israelites were making it really, really difficult for outsiders to worship God, they were putting up obstacles. That's not how God wants his people to be. Jesus included all throughout his ministry. He didn't exclude. And that's how we are to be too today. That's how the kingdom of God advances today too. By God's people, the church, including others so that many would know and see God and be saved. We are to have a large embrace, not stand with our arms folded so that no one can join us or get to know us. We could talk all day about practical invocations of this. I'm going to trust that our elders and deacons are dynamically leading us in that, practically speaking, as a church. I'm going to trust that you in your life and in your households will ask the Holy Spirit to give you that kind of embrace, including, not excluding others, Jesus was protecting his father's house here, and he was about the glory of God's name, and he did this to keep on track God's mission in his world through his people. We are to protect those things too, God's house, God's name, and be vigilant about his mission and his purpose as he gives it to us in his word today too. The third scene is verse 14. And we've seen it all throughout the Gospels. Jesus healing people. This tells us that the kingdom work prioritizes compassion. The kingdom work prioritizes compassion. Caring for those in need is at the very heart of Jesus' work. It's at the heart of his kingdom, compassion for the down and out, compassion for the ones that the regimes of this world often forget and want to leave to the side. We highlight this a lot around here at Faith CRC. You hear it again and again, and it's because it's a kingdom priority. We care for the least, the last, the lost, as we often put it. It's a priority all throughout the Old Testament, which looks ahead to Jesus' arrival and tells us about the kingdom too. It's a priority in the Gospels. We see it here too. The great compassion of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to relieve suffering and help people in need in this life as well as give life for all eternity. Is there evidence of this? Are you asking, are you asking the questions, those three dimensions that we talked about? as we're looking at this how about this one is there evidence of this priority of compassion for those in need in your life we provide a lot of opportunities to express compassion at faith through regular ministries going on every week as well as through special one-time opportunities if you're not an active supporter In one or more of these ministries, I think of our ministries to the poor, the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the sick, the elderly, those out in the mission field. We have vibrant ministries in all of those areas that are ongoing. If you're not a vital part, an active part in one or more of those, I urge you to reconsider and think about your life. Start now. Compassion is at the core of being a kingdom citizen. Not just in your heart feeling bad for those in need. That, that's, not, that's, not, that's not the thing. Active work in the kingdom. Compassion is what it means to be like Jesus. It's how the kingdom of God is advanced in this world. There's a final scene, too, at the end of our verses, and it highlights what the children were doing. There's this focus on the children. They were praising Jesus, too. This final scene shows us that the kingdom faith is childlike. The kingdom faith is childlike. Sometimes we can think we need to be theologians or preachers or youth pastors or seminary professors or elders in the church to really be at the heart of the things of God. That the only people only people with knowledge, like these chief priests and teachers of the law, were real believers, but that's not true. It's not true. The Bible tells us to have faith like a child. Faith like a child. And that doesn't mean we should not want to dig deep into the things of God. It doesn't mean we should... It's okay to be childish in our faith. No, we're called to mature. We're called to grow up as Christians. We're called to dig deep into the things of God. Having faith like a child means that our faith should be genuine and sincere and open and and unafraid. Every day, our Sophia, who's four, she makes a point of hugging me at the door. Big old hug, and then she waves at the front window like mad as I go out the driveway. A number of you have been driving me these past seven months, and I know all of you can uh, attest to that. I'm not making it up. That's the passion and love of a child for her dad, for her parent. You imagine. A little boy or girl, maybe your own child or or grandchild or nephew or niece, just spontaneously hugging you and saying, I love you, Mommy. I love you, Grandpa. I love you, Grandma. There's nothing like that. There's something about the love of a little child. It's, It's genuine. It's pure. It's not jaded by life because of hurt like our life, our lives and love can sometimes be we hold back we've been burned the love of a child holds nothing back jesus deserves that kind of love because he has never failed us he never leaves us or forsakes us he will never ever let you down he never has he never will He emptied himself to come to this troubled earth and our troubled lives with sickness and pain and death and our own sin messing stuff up every day. He rode that donkey as a grown man. Do you ever think about that? He would have looked downright silly on that donkey. His legs would have almost been dragging on the ground. It's a donkey, not a stallion. Looked silly. He did that. He humbled himself for you and for me. And it would get even worse than that. Later that week, betrayal, desertion by his closest friends would come in just a few days. Whips. Whips. Jeers and mocking, a crown of thorns pushed on his head till blood ran down, nails pounded in, hung on a cross. Jesus poured out his blood to save those he loves for you, for me, for all who believe. Maybe today you need to respond afresh to the love of Jesus that was demonstrated for you and what he went through. There was a great Swiss theologian, I bet some of you have heard the name even, Karl Barth. He was known for writing very, very in-depth, complex theology. He was known for asking a lot of questions about the Christian faith. It's said that he was once asked near the end of his life to summarize everything he wrote in his massive, deep work, the church dogmatics. This is the summary he gave. It said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's what these... Worship services are about Palm Sunday, tonight, Good Friday, Easter. It's what gives meaning to your life and mine. Turn again, will you today, to that simple yet profound reality and truth that we see in Jesus, the love of God. Maybe you need to turn back to him today with the simple, open, excited, straightforwardness of a child and say, I love you too, Jesus. When's the last time you've done that? Maybe you need to express your love to Jesus again today because of all that he's done for you and for me. And sing his praise without shame. Tell others how great he is. Just like when you were little, you tell other people how great your dad was. Dig into his work, serving God, serving others. Don't worry about getting all dirty while you're doing it. A little kid doesn't. We should neither as God's people. Go for it. Four scenes. Four characteristics of our precious Savior so we can worship and adore him even more. Four traits that we're called to have personally as we embody kingdom values in our lives. Four ways that the kingdom of God advances and grows in this world. Worship your Savior. May you live as he lived day by day. Be an active part in his mission and the growth of his kingdom. We can do all of that powerfully, passionately, together and with the help of God through his Holy Spirit.